All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the app chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve today. You got me and the homie Miles, uh, just the two of us holding down the fort here. Miles, welcome back to the show, buddy. Oh, it's good to be back. Two two eps in one week. You know, I'm feeling feeling deeply appreciated over here. Uh, well, we have a really good episode for you. There's There's been a it's probably going to come as a surprise, but it's been a busy week in crypto so far. We had uh, we had uh, some high drama in the firm in the form of exploits. We had uh, a resurge in degeneracy on base, and we also had uh, for for more of the folks on the right side of the bell curve on this podcast, we had uh, uh, Barnaby of uh, the Ethereum Foundation has provided some more details on Pepsi, and I thought we could segue and just discuss some of the the new details that Barnaby came out with, but also just talk about it in the context of the discussion that we started to have at the end of the Shriram episode. And it was great to see Barnabé also connected it to some of the other ideas that we had connected it with as well, such as some of the like vote extensions and ABCI++ and Cosmos and Eigenlayer. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff to dig into there. Yeah, no, it's uh, shocking to hear that the EF, you know, actually listens to us. But uh, the I thought I thought it was great and actually clarified a lot of questions that I had about Pepsi. So excited to get into that a little bit later. All right, let's let's start by talking about Curve. And I just want to do the caveat here. We're recording this on August 3rd, this this Thursday. So many of you have probably already gotten to the nitty gritty kind of gory details of the Curve exploit. So we're just going to do a very high level on that. And then Miles, where I want to spend our time is going into the second and third order implications of this and just try to, to riff on that a little bit. So you know, the high level is that it's been pretty public news that the Curve founder, Michael Egorov, has a very large outstanding loan, which is collateralized with CRV. And that's done primarily on Aave, on Aave but also on some other platforms as well, Abracadabra, et cetera. And rec- the, the problem got kicked off when there was an, an exploit in one of the, I think several actually of the Curve pools. Yeah, the way that it the exploit happened was actually pretty discouraging for folks that hold their assets in DeFi. It was actually a a sort of day one bug in the contracting language, which is Viper. Um, so there was just sort of this day one bug that has actually been around for a very long period of time. It uh, unfortunately led to Michael uh, losing some more 
some more of his uh, curve holdings um, that led the market to kind of start to price in where he was going to get liquidated. As soon as that stuff goes out into the out into the open, the shark the sharks start circling, and people are basically trying to snipe off his position. It, it looks like what what Michael's been able to do thus far is to sell some CRV OTC um, and raise up enough funds to top off his positions. Uh, again, the largest one being on Ave, but some other platforms as well. He was also scrambling, kind of selling off LDO in these sort of ten thousand dollar chunks. And it looks like for the time at the time of this recording that he's scrambled up enough cash to to save himself. But sort of a tough tough week in a, in a black eye for DeFi. I would say it certainly makes you question. You know, if there's been a day one bug in the the programming language of Curve for this long, I mean, if you can't trust one of the majors like Curve, it just makes it that much harder to custody your assets on chain. And what, what, what do you find yourself thinking about all this? Yeah, I mean, just on that security point, I think. Um, we like to say that there are, you know, a small handful of protocols that have battle hardened, you know, contracts, um, right. Lindy is, yeah, exactly. DeFi is, you know, e extremely antagonistic environment for, for protocols. Um, and when one doesn't get hacked for, a, you know, a few years among tons of other hacks, then it, you know, the, the confidence basically compounds, um, and it's incredibly important. Uh, so when, you have an, like an incident like this where we thought one of the very few battle hardened protocols, you know, that was that stood the test of time actually has a critical vulnerability that was there from the day one. It, you know, it makes you uh, nervous um, about, you know, I guess just the scope of attack sur surface uh, that, that, it, you know, these DeFi protocols have to deal with. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about circuit breaker security um, services in the past, but the concern has always been if you add something like a circuit breaker that you know pauses the protocol whenever a hack is detected, you lose you know composability with with the rest of the DeFi ecosystem that is you know relying on your protocol for for certain functions, um, and that's really the role that Curve does play with a lot of DeFi. Right, um, it is a Lego block that tons of protocols you know, link into. And I do think that if we can break through those trade-offs, we would have a huge, it would be a huge boost to, to the DeFi ecosystem. Um, so that's, that's maybe the first take. Uh, we need circuit breakers that don't break composability or at least give, you know, trade-offs that are a lot more acceptable. Um, and then the second takeaway, which is, you know, been a kind of, uh, take of mine for a, lot, a while might be a hot take, might be lukewarm, but um, I really don't think it's healthy when the functionality or utility of your protocol um, can be impacted by the price of your token. Um, and I just use this analogy, you know, what if there was a market event that impacted Hood and then all of a sudden Robin Hood, you know, the value prop was degraded. Either it was less secure or, you know, services that were relied upon could no longer be relied upon. I don't think that's a healthy thing. And so this concept of VE tokens, you know, has been in discussion for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, essentially Curve's role is to be a critical piece of DeFi infrastructure, um, right? And many of these DeFi protocols use Curve pools they uh, rely on curve uh, emission incentives um, 
basically to offset what would be otherwise pretty unprofitable LP positions. Let me just insert, just for folks who aren't familiar with with the the tokenomics of Curve, but the the way the to the tokenomics of Curve works is that you are you are incentivized. You're, you're basically the structure of the token works that you're taxed if you're just a regular CRV holder. What you are incentivized to do is to lock up your token into a vote escrow model anywhere from one to four years. That however long you lock your CRV tokens up will give you disproportionate power to direct the emissions of CRV into different liquidity pools. So the way it's supposed to work is if you're a stable coin and Curve is the premier menu for, for stable coin liquidity, what you can do is buy a bunch of CRV, lock it up, direct CRV emissions to your pool, and farmers will essentially you know, want to LP there because the rewards will be greater. So that's what you mean, right, when you say that the the price of the the token matters a lot to the actual functioning of the product. And last thing I'll say, it's actually sort of Bitcoinish in a, in a way because you know, the tokenomics it, it very similar like, to Bitcoin. They actually uh, shoot. I our analyst Dan is rolling over in his grave right now. But there's a there's a splitting. There's that kind of having event that happens. I'm pretty sure at the frequency of might be every year, might be four years for Curve. But yeah, there are less emissions that get emitted over time, similarly to Bitcoin. Right, right. And I, I think I think that's all well and good. Um, but if I guess my point is, if your protocol relies on incentives to keep all this scaffolding, you know, uh, intact, um, and the incentives, you know, are at risk of going to zero, then at any given point, right? I, I just think that that's one more risk that protocols really don't need to introduce um, to to build a successful product. And I think that, you know, it's probably you know, this is very well known to, to the team. And I think it's probably part of why, you know, the co-founder took out enormous credit lines on his CRV positions rather than, you know, diversifying and selling that CRV position on dumping it on the open market, which I think is great um, to not, you know, dump on your, uh, all of your holders. Um, but now that his position is very well known and the implications of a liquidation are very well known, people are going to hunt that position. Um, and if half of the circulating market cap of, of CRV is, is liquidated, um, I'm guessing that drives the price of CRV close to zero. Um, and then all of the scaffolding kind of comes apart. Right. Um, and so, you know, Uniswap has taken kind of the opposite route, doesn't have the token play any role in the protocol and instead relies upon this, you know, assumption that there is a sophisticated supply side that will come in and actively manage, you know, their liquidity to be profitable. Um, and there are definitely questions of whether or not they're actually profitable or not, but I would rather have this assumption and figure out ways to, you know, make them profitable rather than just relying on everybody holding this token, um, and holding some value in this token. Um, yeah, so I think that this, probably doesn't completely put the VE token discussion to bed, but I haven't heard a lot of people kind of connecting this back to, you know, maybe this is not a great idea. Maybe we should have the token play like less of a role in the functioning of a product. Yeah. Let me, let me just comment, correct what I said before. So the inflation schedule gets reduced by about 15% every year. So that emissions will actually stop in 2040. Let me push back a little bit, Miles, and just say, you know, I'm I'm torn on that. I don't have as much of a strong opinion as you do here because, you know, in the one sense, it's very 
compelling to me to just say these protocols should basically be treated as companies and these tokens are a claim on cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. But I, you know, then I sort of remind myself that maybe I'm being a little bit too looking at the world as it exists today and not being optimistic enough that we've started to do something new here. And I would remind you also that the major successes that we've had thus far in crypto also are these sort of circular reflexive uh, mechanisms. So Bitcoin is one, Ethereum is one. And, you know, whenever someone says, you know, we, we don't, we haven't found the killer use case yet for crypto. I mean, haven't we? <laughs> I mean, you know, non-sovereign money, um, you know, an open smart contracting platform that anyone can build anything on. I mean, these are not nothing use cases. And Curve, Curve reminds me of that a little bit. And while, while I understand, you know, in the Robinhood example, maybe the best example would be if Robinhood was incentivizing its market makers with Hood. And then once the stock went down low enough, then all the liquidity fled the platform or something. I understand that that would be bad. But I also, I, I can't help but be optimistic about these sorts of models. And maybe someone will crack the code and, and make this, you know, a reflexive flywheel is powerful when it's pumping in the right direction too. So I see where you're coming from, but I'm, I'm in the undecided camp on this personally. Yeah, I think that's fine. I, I guess I would I would say that, you know, I think some of the most successful like apps that we've had today have no token functionality whatsoever. You know, just point to like OpenSea and Uniswap as as two of them. Um and you know, they come people use these products because they offer those those value props that you were talking about, right? Basically the ability to transact and um, you know, participate in financial markets permissionlessly. Uh, to transfer value permissionlessly. Um, and I think that the teams building on Ethereum are not building on Ethereum because of say EIP 1559 or something like that is, you know, tokenomics related. Um, if anything, I would say that's like a detractor. Um, so yeah, maybe it's just this point of the bear market where, you know, everybody's foo-fooing on, on tokenomics and, and whatnot. And I sound like a boomer, but I also just, you know, would, don't feel like it's healthy that anytime there could be a market scare of your token price, people are, you know, liquidity is leaving or something like that. Um, yeah, I do agree with that. And but I will stay open-minded. I will, because <laughs> if you don't well, in this space, then you get left behind. You, you know? do. And actually one time I forget it was, it might've might been on an empire podcast with Jason, but Jason and I went on and did predictions like six, seven predictions for the new year or something. Yeah, and this was at the peak of the bull market, and I went back <laughs> and I listened to it a year after, and I was like, "Oh, oh my boy. god, I can't believe I said some of those things." Yeah, and the mistake that I made was assuming that the last twelve months were indicative of the next twelve months, and it's really easy to make that mistake of this of period of time as well. You know, it's been this great unraveling and sort of period of disillusionment that bear markets always are. That provide clarity, but it has the the chance it make can make you go too far in one direction. And one thing about you, so I agree with you also that that protocols should be more probably conservative in the beginning around launching a token. I would say OpenSea is in a little bit of a different category. They're a more traditional company, and Uniswap is a little bit of an enigma to me because those LPs that you I, I, looking at Uniswap from the outside, it, it's kind of unclear why the business works actually or why the protocol works. The LPs, first of all, it's a very concentrated bunch of LPs that stand that protocol up and they're surrendering 
on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars per year in IL to Ethereum. And I don't think it's, you know, usually if you're a very large, if you have those sorts of funds, you tend to be a pretty sophisticated actor. I don't think it's too far to say that the folks that are LPing in those sort of situations might have, you know, an ulterior or secondary financial arrangement that make it worth it for them to do that. But I, you know, as much as I'm a fan of, of, of everything going on at, at Uniswap, like, I'm not sure if anyone has fully cracked the answer here. I, yeah, I don't, totally. I don't, you know I, what I, I mean? I, I agree. I think maybe just two quick points. Like, there's a difference between launching a token and not launching a token versus launching a token and making the your token like required, you know, to use in the product itself. I get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. So there's like that's that's small difference. Um, and then obviously, like launching a token has implications on the operating and governance structure, and that needs to be thought through like very a lot as well. Um, I, yeah, you could argue it's a head scratcher, but that's because opt, uh, like Uniswap has really, uh, prioritized the demand side. Um, and so as long as flow is there, there is going to be potential for, to make profits. I think the data has been, you know, showing that if you are not in the top 1% of the 1% of LPs of the smartest LPs, then you're not going to make money. But, um, you know, that, the capital base of that very small, you know, uh, end is very big. Um, and yeah, I think if anything curve has maybe, um, aligned itself more with the supply side of liquidity providers, um, because that supply side is not just individuals that supply side is DeFi protocols that, that build on it. Right. Um, and those are kind of customers in a way. So from that side, it's, you know, from that perspective, it's understandable. Dex architecture is pretty interesting to me. It's, you have three large sets of stakeholders you could you could expand that out a little bit and say there are actually four maybe even five but what you have is the protocol itself you've got makers and you've got takers you've got swappers and lps and a lot of the interesting lines of research around dexes have to do with getting different stakeholders to pay the appropriate amount or make sure that value is distributed appropriately and if you imagine this bar which is the amount of revenue that the protocol can generate kind of based on transaction costs. There's actually a very interesting line of research and why Uniswap, I would guess, is so is switching to a singleton contract is gas is actually cutting into their own margins, right? Uh, so because that's less that you could charge uh, if, if, if swappers already have to pay a gas fee, then there's this pretty interesting research around arbitrageurs and how much they should get paid. Right now, they're probably getting paid too much and there are ways to quantify and um, sort of segment off some of the more toxic flow. And, right. and, and so you can kind of think about reducing the cost structure for the, the protocol in the form of gas. And then you could also think about maybe introducing new ways of monetizing. So you grow this bar, yeah, right? Like, right? And that could be, that could be, Uniswap's kind of crushing it right now, actually. They're really, they've got the wallet layer, you know, they've got their front end and then their retail facing wallet, which who knows, maybe they end up deciding to monetize order flow. And yeah. they've got the aggregation layer in the Uniswap X, and they're kind of RFQing that, and they're that's from yeah. the demand side. And then they've got the liquidity layer in the form of V4. The only question is, is there going to be a settlement layer, and are we going to are we going to get Unichain? But it's and that would fix that would really truly fix the uh, the cost that they're paying in rent to Ethereum, the protocol. But man, uh, it's pretty cool what they're doing. They're further and further aligning themselves with the most sophisticated actors on the supply side. Right. Because Uniswap X just says, sorry, LPs, like 
it, a lot of these orders are not going to get routed to you. And the ones that are, are not going to be the ones that you want to see. They're going to be a lot of the toxic flow. Um, but that gives the users on the demand side, the best possible experience. And so I think that they've been very strategic in aligning themselves with both, you know, the users and what the, basically the product that they get. And then this very, you know, small class of sophisticated supply side actors, um, and we'll see if, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm less confident, you know, in the prospects of there being uni chain just because, you know, you don't necessarily need to operate a full chain if you can basically abstract away the chain with the aggregator and the wallet level um, and still give users exactly what they want. They don't need to give a shit where, you know, which chain it's on, right? And so I think maybe that's more of the bet that they're making. Just to bookend that whole conversation is, in general, I tend to root for the whole space when stuff like this happens and you never love to see a, a chain get exploited. I, I do, though, think that the designs that ultimately win in DeFi, this is a lesson that I think we're ignoring from TradFi that I think we should be paying more heed to. Simplicity design, simplicity, risk, great risk management, long game. You know, it it's very exciting because we're all... You know, crypto is a young industry and we love to see cool stuff. Who doesn't like to see innovation happen? But I do think the reason TradFi tends to be so risk averse is because they've seen it go wrong in a million different ways. And probably the ones who've stuck around and built enduring businesses over there do a great job of risk management. And and it's it's become a defining set of principles that I'm, I'm starting to look at most DeFi protocols through. You know, I'd spent the first part of my career at fidelity and that was really we were selling trust right and and the idea was long-term greedy like that is the mindset to get into um but lo long-term greedy I'll, I'll typically means saying no to a lot of really exciting potential short-term opportunities um and then playing your cards right to know okay what is actually real and what is synergistic with our existing products to then go expand into but not typically being the first to do it, not typically being the most, you know, aggressive. Um, and I think, you know, keeping to those principles is going to benefit a lot of a lot of DeFi protocols. I mean, we spent a lot of time on this season talking about Lido and, you know, should they expand into restaking? Should they expand into XYZ, right? Or should they just do one thing and do it great and win the entire market? Um, and and not open themselves up to all these additional attack vectors. You know, I think We'll see interesting trade-offs as teams look to expand, you know, horizontally or vertically, um, and think about, you know, the the risks around that potentially. Um, everybody everybody thinks about the revenue opportunity, obviously. There's this very simple kind of diagram. I, I repeat this a lot internally at Blockworks to the point where people are definitely sick of hearing it. <laughs> but you know, if you look at this industry, what it is is it's this line that's going like this. You yeah. know, it, uh, aggressive ups and aggressive downs and. If you imagine mentally drawing a line through this series of like upward trending curves, be the line. Yeah. And what that means is be more cautious and conservative in bull markets and it'll look like you're losing for a little bit, which is really mentally taxing. And But then also be the line during bear markets and don't throw your hands up in despair and say none of this, none of this stuff yeah. works. Just keep your head down and keep expanding in a way that's consistent and then you'll ride you know that what you, the payoff for being that line through the the squiggle yeah. is that the slope of the line is much higher than an average industry and if you can just put your head down and build through this over a long period of time 
you'll get paid off. All right, I want to I want to um, talk to you a little bit about base because we had base launch this week. This is the long awaited. This is the first major, I think, OP stack chain. There's obviously a chain that is launched and operated by Coinbase. I think, uh, Twitter users found out that you can. There's a one way bridge that opened up to base this week, and I think the numbers were at least as of earlier. Our our uh, one of our reporters, Andrew Thurman, wrote about this. But uh, there were about 98,000 addresses that bridged over to base. 75,000 of those have um, also bridged over to Polygon, Phantom, or Binance Smart Chain. So you, know, you can make your own assumptions, but yeah, I'd consider these sort of degen crypto power users. There were a couple of base DEXs that popped up very quickly, Elite Swap and Rocket Swap. It was $230 million worth of volume, 24-hour uh, volume at one point, 700,000 trades. I mean... Pretty, pretty crazy. And there was, of course, in true crypto fashion, a meme coin. The meme coin was bald, which objectively is funny. It's objectively funny. Uh, so we got to give that credit. Best thing for the industry, I don't know, but objectively funny. And there was $100 million worth of <laughs> reach a $100 million market cap in just two days. And then someone, the, the dev who made that essentially they were providing liquidity and then they just rugged it and it basically went to zero. So I, I'm, I'm not ultra surprised about how any of this has played out. It's been actually a revenue generator for, for Coinbase thus far. So let me present this here. One of our analysts, Westy, put this together. In just three days, Coinbase or Base has accrued over $700,000 in profit. So that is net of the cost of posting that data to the L1, which on an annual basis is 85 million. So not too shabby for the first three days of the of the yeah. Which yeah, I think we can we should not maybe extend out this like you know extraordinarily like, <laughs> you know big DJ, DJ yeah. explosion uh, of activity out to what will be like you know the average uh, daily profits, but still gives you a sense of what this could be nonetheless if, if it mm. really blows up i mean yeah i think it's all fascinating um one of the themes of that i was surprised like not to hear uh, a lot about in paris is how you know base and and mantle as well from from BitDAO and, and by bit are, are kind of laying out this blueprint for how enterprises can finally build you know enterprise blockchains without having to say this is a private blockchain and a walled garden completely and you know all of the negative sentiment that goes with that um this is actually a way to build products on chain and have retained some of those benefits of a private blockchain retain the benefits of control um and compliance and things like that that they that they care about and so what's interesting to me is they're you know we're starting to see what kind of works and what doesn't work with this with this plan. Um, and I think you know, we've talked about this a lot, but the trade-offs around curation uh, versus completely permissionless when you're building out a platform. Um, and we see here how that can impact the end user experience, right? Now, base being the first was not likely going to come out and say, you know, we're going to have permissioned smart contract deployment. We're going to at least have, you know, if not permissioned smart contract deployment, maybe something like the Apple store where you have to meet a certain set of standards. Like, Hey, I have a real product. This is a, this is a, not a scam, 
right, to to actually deploy on our rollup. Um, and I think if you go back in time to when Optimism and Arbitrum launched, you know, Optimism fell way behind because Arbitrum didn't have this whitelist, right, uh, for 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 deploying. Um, and I think Base probably looked at that and said, you know, we don't want to lag behind. We don't want to come off as super opinionated, and this is we don't want to have a private blockchain. But I do think that you know other enterprises that are kind of watching these pioneers, you know, launch these, you know, I would say enterprise rollups. Let's just call it. Um, are looking at this and saying, hmm, maybe we should be a little bit more opinionated, or at least have like some sort of you know standard for deploying on uh, that you have to meet in order to deploy on our rollup. Um, and how do we strike that balance? You know when it's such a competitive space right now, every rollup is competing to get apps to, you know, launch on their chain. And some apps like, you know, will would love to associate their brand with base, but does base really want to associate their brand with, with them? Um, so I just think it's interesting. We'll see, I, I think base and, and mantle will be the first of many, uh, companies launching rollups. Um, as platforms and, and, and building first-class apps on those platforms. Um, and we'll revisit this conversation of like curation for the benefits of users versus permissionless. So let me ask you this. Do you think bald and that whole explosion of activity, albeit meme coin speculation was good or bad for basis launch? Um, hmm. It's definitely, uh, my my inclination like was bad. Like I don't. I think like more of, more of the same here is not necessarily what we need. Um, something that is like differentiated and and really clean uh, and and gets through to you know a larger class of users is is more of what we need. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'm not trying to discount the power of of speculation and and what it has you know, how it's boosted like the crypto space broadly, right? I think it's good. I thought this was good. And the argument that I'll make is, so Coinbase is one of the, OG, everyone kind of owes Coinbase, I sort of feel like a debt of gratitude being in crypto. They are the, the blue chip, they're a public company. They are not perfect, but they've done it about as right as you could possibly have wanted to do it. And when they're, you know, when they, this, this move of, of base chain was a really big one. And what would have kind of sucked is if they had made it this corporate KYC mm. thing from day one, it just, yeah, I understand why, but I would have just, my soul would have been a little bit crushed. And I think that's do fair. I, you know, and do I think bald is great? No, I don't. But you know, at least I was kind of like, all right, Coinbase, like way to let your hair down. Yeah. Yeah. There. <laughs> and, and, and the other thing that I, you know, it's all very well and good to say, Hey, we'd like a more sophisticated class of users. Great. Who who wouldn't? But these are the users that we have today, right now. You yeah. know, I I I don't think it's some UI decision or product choice or something. You, I think, as a as a crypto protocol right now, have two choices. You can build for your DGen audience today, or you can build for no one because there aren't these normie people out there. That are watching base saying, "Man, if only there wasn't a meme coin here, I'd go in and I'd start LPing on this stuff." Yeah, yeah, it's just you have two choices. You have to, and this is where I think really great visionary product designers. This is the art 
you know, that complements the science of product design, which is meeting the market that exists today. Yeah. While also threading that into a longer term vision, which is because, you know, crypto's it's just a graveyard littered with people that were building for what they thought the market should be. Yeah. You, you, there are just so many companies that have died doing that. I think that's totally fair. I think that's totally fair. I think I, the, you know, the crypto native community and myself included also would have been like, nah, that's not great. If they made every single user that connects to KYC and they had some sort of highly, highly curated, you know, impossible to get through like deployment process. Um, do I think that there's a portion of these future customers? And when I say customers, I don't mean end users, but companies that are going to develop, you know, platforms rollups and applications that look at this and say, mm -hmm. okay, I like the spirit of it, but maybe there's like, maybe we've gone like, oh, there's a little bit full extreme permissionless. Maybe there's like, and then on the other side is fully curated and just very, you know, stiff and corporate. And maybe there's some balance to strike there, or maybe there's just better tools that we could add to help protect users while not actually being opinionated on the deployment level. Like, you know, there's there's a lot missing, and it's unclear exactly how you strike that balance. Um, but I do think trust, you know, is uh, like plays an enormous role in all of this. Um, and Coinbase has been really, really thoughtful about how to build trust um, with both the crypto native community as well as the more traditional side. You know, like the face that they put on when they walk into BlackRock is probably different than the face that they put on when they announce base on Twitter spaces, like, and they're threading that needle, um, to be both what the market wants today, as well as positioning itself to be, you know, the go-to provider for everybody tomorrow. Um, and yeah, I think this is one example where they're probably looking at it like, mm, how do we handle this? Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Tough. Uh, my heart's yeah. out there for people that try to create products in crypto because it's it's difficult. the The end state market is certainly not the market that you have today, but you can't just ignore the market that you have today. No, you, have you to, can't. Yeah, so you got to do something. So, yeah. the other question that I found myself asking, especially looking at that those profit figures for that Coinbase is going to base is going to generate, albeit likely, you're absolutely right, Miles. We shouldn't just extrapolate the first three day meme coin bonanza out into the future, but what portion of this is optimism seeing and how is value going to accrue? And this, I think, is an unanswered question in terms of these stack architectures that I'm actually a big fan of. I really like the OP stack and, you know, Arbitrum Orbit has a little bit of a different one. They have L3s that actually point you to settle on Arbitrum first, which maybe is their answer for how they're going to accrue value. But settlement, as I had a great conversation with Neil, I mean, that's Neil Samani this week at Eclipse, shout out for explaining to me like I'm five, the cost structure here. Settlement is very cheap. Settlement is not the major cost for rollups. Yeah, not at all. To, to the, to the I think Optimism is paying something like $5 a day to Ethereum. Correct me if I'm way off there, but I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's a very, very negligible amount. So all of this revenue that, you know, it was a huge win from a BD perspective when Base was launching on the OP stack, but how are they going to accrue value? Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about like this in the past a little bit and the position that tough, somewhat tough position that, that OP and, and optimism is in. Um, yeah. 
you know, I, I look at this, this roll up value accrual, you know, kind of competition. Um, and I think that there's a couple of big stakeholders here. Um, there's the OP, I'm sorry, like the roll up frameworks, uh, there's the roll up as a service providers. Um, mm -hmm. and then of course there are, you know, the applications and the roll up teams that are building using the stack. Right. Um, but that's, they're not using it on OP mainnet, which accrues value directly or Arbitrum one, which accrues value directly to Arbitrum and, and OP and the tokens. So the short answer is, you know, if you use the OP stack or the Arbitrum stack, um, and you use a roll up as a service provider to help you launch, um, the two people that are seeing revenue are the roll up team and the roll up as a service provider. The, the the stakeholder not seeing any revenue is the op framework and the token behind that that you know helped launch and like build all this infrastructure right um and if you look at on the cosmos side where we have similar sort of dynamics with adam right adam was an ico that funded out the development of the cosmos sdk ibc and all of these components are now used for different app chains. Um, and now Adam is basically trying to reverse engineer a way to accrue value back to its token um, without really, you know, levying too hard of a tax on the app chains that it has helped made successful, right? And those two things are kind of at odds. I could see OP, you know, I, I think they're now trying to pull some influence and, and value capture back in by putting out this, you know, law of chains. Um, mm, tell is, us, Miles, what is the law of chains? Give us yeah, the DLDR on that. The my understanding is that anybody is free to use the OP stack, fork it, you know, customize it however they want. Um, but there's a difference between an OP stack chain and an OP stack chain that is part of the super chain. Um, and what that means is that they basically have this, you know set of standards, both technical and social, that is kind of like a, I would say, you know, what you're accepting to like the, you know, conditions you're accepting as a user to call yourself, you know, part of this super chain. Um, this is kind of like if there, again, maybe just going back to Cosmos, because there's so much history here, if there was, you know, a requirement from Adam, let's say Adam owned, you know, governed the Cosmos SDK and IBC, and they would vote on upgrades and every chain that used it had to upgrade at the exact same time. Um, right now, that's not the case. Everybody uses these components, but they're using different versions. And, you know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of a shit show, honestly, it's, it makes things very challenging. Um, and I think OP learned from that and they said, we're actually going to take a more active role in enforcing the standards that, that make up the OP stack. Um, so sorry, no, you're not going to be able to customize however you want, you know, to the nth degree, if you want to be part of the super chain, you're willing to do that. Like you're feel free to do that, but you're no longer part of the super chain. And I think what they're hoping for is that the network effects associated with sharing these standards are powerful enough that people will be motivated to join the super chain. Um, these are things like, you know, infrastructure services that can easily plug in as soon as you stand your stand up your chain because they already support this, you know, exact same stack with every other super chain um, roll up or let's say interoperability. Maybe there's something along the lines of like a shared sequencer that really only works well with super chains. Um, 
And I think that that's, there's definitely some merit to that, but it also puts a, them in a position where they can then, you know, levy maybe more of a tax on their, the super chains as well. Like, Hey, by the way, kick back like 1% of all sequencer revenue, if you want to remain part of the super chain. Um, and that way the rollup framework actually has some value associated with it right now. Um, like the Cosmos SDK, there is no value associated with the Cosmos SDK. The only people that are profiting off of the development of the Cosmos SDK are those that are using it for their application, right? And all that value accrues to the applications token in the same way that, you know, like AVO, right? The Riven rollup um, will use the OP stack and its sequencer revenues will and application revenues will go to both, you know, Ribbon, AVO, and maybe like the RAS provider it's using to help host those sequencers. Um, so it's a really interesting like coopetition between these RAS providers and the frameworks themselves because they need it. Everybody's in this grow mode, but in the back of their head, it feels like people are, you know, starting to realize there's actually going to be a lot of competition and tension, you know, for value accrual. Um, and starting to position themselves to, to capitalize on that. Yeah, I am reminded of this quote, some podcast I've heard a while ago, probably invest like the best, where this guy was describing some of the greatest battles that happen in technology are not between competitors, but actually people that are uh, different parts of the same stack, and they start competing for value accrual and margin. And that's probably what is happening now and just to put some more concrete examples the roll-up provider would be optimism in this case conduit would be the ras the roll-up as a service and then there would be various chains that use that infrastructure and part of this is it is yet to be determined at what level execution data availability or settlement the network effects accrue and I'm just going to go ahead and say many people in this space assume that it's going to be at the settlement layer when I think you're starting to see pretty compelling evidence that that's not necessarily the case. And there is, let me make an argument that I only kind of believe in here, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong. But these rollups have done a very good job. You and I have talked about alignment and this sort of marketing magic that goes along with alignment and these people that kind of believe that these rollups are expanding ethereum and i'm not really sure that's actually the case you know you could you could certainly if the lock-in and the network effect tends to be at the execution layer which is kind of this role of sequencing and so there's a bunch of off-chain cheaper computation that gets done at the roll-up layer transition uh, transactions are sequenced up here there's a set of standards that these, you know, maybe it's the law of chains or, you know, some RAS provider kind of nails it. And there's this stack that ends up taking off here that works. Then you could sort of imagine a world where, well, data availability on Ethereum is really expensive. So we're going to route that through Celestia. And then, you know, we'll maybe, we'll probably settle to Ethereum, but maybe we'll get cheaper settlements somewhere else. And, you know, and it, it ultimately, you know, there's a, the probably important question is, do you think in these roll-ups heads, they're going to stay permanently on Ethereum? I don't know. I believe in people's economics. So it really depends on, you know, if the incentives of the token holders on Optimism or Arbitrum or ZK Sync or any of these, these app chains, if they end up differing greatly from the token holders on Ethereum. 
And it is not a one battle about, and the other thing I'll say to defend Cosmos a little bit is you and I did that whole app chain thesis on Cosmos and, and we talked about a spectrum of different possibilities of, you know, you launching as a dApp on Ethereum to you having your own rollup is the terminology that we used or doing your full, full stack app chain. And we laid out a sequencing which is you most likely start as a dApp on Ethereum, then you become a rollap, and then you go to Cosmos. There's a very good possibility we are in the second part of that sequencing, and it looks like the it's like why would you ever not want to sit where all these users are in Ethereum and and et cetera et cetera. There's not really a logical reason why Ethereum should have distribution to me. I, we might just be at this part of the sequencing where most roll-ups are like, oh, we want to still want to stay within the fold here and not go too far out. But all it would take is two or three dApps with real product market fit to say, yeah, it's a no-brainer for me to own this full stack myself. And I don't need distribution. I've got a ton of distribution. What I need is perfect granularity over my app space. And then you could see Cosmos, that could be a real boon. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think maybe just touching on the alignment point, um, I think it's a an effective GTM strategy, right? Yeah, I do like so. OP has piggybacked on you know alignment with Ethereum to get you know support from all the Ethereum leaders and positive sentiment, and then you know optimism is known as like scaling for Ethereum, and then you have a player like Conduit who is the roll up as a service provider that has aligned itself with optimism, right? But at the end of the day, both like if so conduit says like you know i'm op and by default i am you know ethereum oriented and then they also could at a certain point you know be the top of the funnel for these roll-up frameworks and then break alignment by saying okay we're going to give you the stack that makes the most sense for your um for your application and to your point maybe you don't need premium da so we're going to actually point your DA solution to Celestia. Um, maybe you want like something that is extraordinarily high throughput. Maybe we'll give you, you know, use this ZK, you know, framework or something like that. Um, and so the alignment thing, I think, is more of like a kind of a Trojan horse strategy, which allows you to get the distribution. Um, it's unclear who's going to get that, whether it's the rollup frameworks, right? Because then they can do the same thing as well. It's like, like OP is agnostic to the DA layer, um, even though it's very aligned with Ethereum. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's one potential outcome um, is, you know, this is alignment is really just powerful for, for, uh, for early, like go to market purposes before, you know, and then once you own the distribution, then you can decide, like, you know, basically use your own brand as a shilling point instead of, piggybacking on something else. Um, yeah. And then just to touch on the spectrum piece. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I wouldn't say that I've always thought about that spectrum. And then I wouldn't say that we're like in a certain stage of it. I would say that the spectrum will always exist and it's going to be more of a sequencing thing uh, where yes, the cheapest way to stand up your app when you have like an MVP is on a general purpose roll up, right? And then if you get lots of users, you find product market fit and you figure out, you know, hmm, we can make a better product and get even more users by like owning more of the stack. So let's move to our own rollup, right? Mm. And then at that point, I have enough users that they come with us to our own rollup. We try to make that migration as frictionless as possible. 
And then once you get to the very top of the pyramid, there's probably, you know, uh, you could see like one outcome where it's only really the largest apps that have the leverage and the desire to move to their full, like full stack app chain. Um, well, what see. is the largest, I mean, largest well, today, DIY, right? Let's DYDX, like... DYDX, right? Right. DIY, right. DYDX says, okay, I have a ton of users already. These users are coming to use DYDX, not because of Ethereum, but because of our app, right? So the shilling point is DYDX. Now, what do I need to do to make DYDX a finished product or a better product? Well, the way that we do our order book matching system right yeah. now is extraordinarily centralized. And that is not what I, you know, what we look at is like the, the end game for DYDX. Okay. How do we do that? Like we got to have own the whole stack, right? But how right. many actually get up to that top of the, you know, pyramid? Well, largest, largest is a relative. So largest could is a relative term. DYDX yeah. has a lot of users compared to other apps in crypto, but it actually might be an absolute number. You know, it like right. you, it might instead of it being oh, only the couple largest will do this. Oh, okay, yeah. There yeah, might yeah. be a, there might be hey, after we have five million users, which right, right. Lord hope we get to a point where there are many crypto apps with that many users. Yeah, right. Then you know, then so anything, mm. so stuff that would be considered large today, but in the future might be relatively small. Yeah, and right. and I think we're agreeing. By the way, I I also mm -hmm. think, and you've seen different apps start as just apps. Some have gone right to full stack app chain from the beginning, like Osmosis, yep. and some have opted for this roll app sort of architecture. But I do think there's a natural, you know, sequencing of you start here. Maybe you're DAP for twelve to eighteen months before you get your product market fit. Then you need get your own block space, and then um, and then you go do your real. You own the whole stack. Yep. The other thing, the last thing, because I do want to get into Pepsi here is I've started to maybe think you and I used to talk about uh, the premium on app specific block space, but maybe there's another shade in between general block space and app specific block space, which is sort of sector specific block space. And this whole law of chains thing, and even talking to some of the roll up as a service providers is you probably don't, aren't going to have infinite different blockchains, all with tiny little different customizations. There is definitely from the business model of a RAS provider, you want to standardize some stuff. And maybe what you say is there are, you know, 10 different parameters for different chains. Maybe block size is a really big one. And let's say 80% of DeFi use cases want, for instance, shorter block times, something like that. And you kind of create this standard, you know, off the shelf thing, which will fill most of the use cases for 80% of the chains and the economics end up looking a lot better. So maybe there's kind of totally generalized block space like Solana or Ethereum, sector specific, you know, RAS designed, hey, this is sort of what our out of the box DeFi sequencer looks like and block time that we recommend and all of that stuff. And then maybe there's, again, for the apps with PMF or Cosmos uh, uh, full stacks, completely customizable where, you know, you get to the Facebook level of like different shades of blue, you know, uh, for the icon. Also touches on like just how, um, abundant can we make block space? I think there's a prevailing kind of belief today that if your application does not, you know, involve transferring value, then it's probably not worth having it on your own chain or even worth being on chain in the first place, because transacting on blockchains today is just inherently expensive. Um, but how do we 
basically drive down that cost of block space as much as possible to open up, you know, more non-financial applications where it actually makes sense to launch on a blockchain. So that's one is you know, how cheap can we get block space for non-financial applications versus, you know, what applications will actually want some sort of valuable block space because the value being transferred there is significant and, you know, a decentralized block space is usually more expensive. Um, so that that's one piece. And then, yeah, I, I think just, just quickly, like there, I've been thinking a lot of, I guess I came from the mindset that as much customization as possible uh, is, you know, why the hell wouldn't you want that? Like there's this, this is, this is great. Like you can optimize every little bit and piece for the application. Um, I've started to come around on the idea that, you know, there are significant network effects to standardization of maybe more than just like IBC that we see in Cosmos. Um, and that relates to just all of this, like infrastructure services that a blockchain needs to be production ready. Um, it's a real pain in the ass when you have something like very customized, then you go to a service provider and they say, uh, well, this is going to be a significant investment for us rather than you just doing some sort of self-serve, like, you know, checkout basically, because you're already something that they support. So yeah, I think we'll start to see and like OP law of chains, you know, the super chain, I think that's one end of the spectrum. I think like the, the amount of, you know, sovereignty and customization in Cosmos is the other end of the spectrum. And just, something to pay attention to. Yeah. And also just to defend Ethereum a little bit here, because I feel like I've been being a little bit harsh <laughs> about the, the roll-ups is, you know, when people attack the fees on Ethereum, I, I tend to be in the camp that high fees mean there's demand on this space. And I it's kind of like New York. Yeah. New York's expensive and the yeah. rent is high and everyone's yeah. been complaining about it from the dawn of time and they're going to be complaining about it till the end of time when everyone yeah. still lives here. So I don't know. I, I'm empathetic to the idea that lowering the cost of transactions will open entirely new things you can do on chain that yeah. are impossible today. You're, you're, if you're designing it on Ethereum, you're coming from a very constrained perspective. But on the other hand, there's a reason, you know, it's the king. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And I, that part of the reason also sometimes I try to poke at Ethereum is can't help but root for the underdogs too. You know, everyone loves an underdog story. Exactly. Like, exactly. Um, so consensus bets. Yeah. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about Pepsi. Barnabé uh, put together. So he's been talking about this for a little while, and I'm I'm I was really glad to hear the way that he was discussing it because he explicitly in this in this outline for Pepsi talked about it within the context of Miles. Some of the stuff that you and I brought up the other day, which was its relation to eigenlayer and abci plus plus and he he talked about it within the context of swab as well and how it sort of relates there but the the, the idea at a very high level is pepsi stands for protocol and for enforce proposer commitments and it kind of is what it sounds like it's the ability for proposers to make uh credible commitments on chain so there would be some sort of enshrined mechanism which would allow proposers to extend, especially within the the context of the PBS, you know, part of Pepsi. Um, you know, it would allow proposers to make more credible commitments ahead of time to builders that if the validity conditions weren't satisfied, then you know the block would would ultimately not be valid. And 
again, to like really zoom out at a high level, the way that I think about this is, you know, even when you, you kind of look at different blockchains, most of the big differences from between Ethereum and uh, Solana and Cosmos is variations on what you think the role of the validator should be. Like what you think a validator should ultimately look like. How many of them are there? How expensive are they to run? And what should their responsibilities be? And each blockchain has a very different idea to be very broad and, and over general. Um, Ethereum has taken the perspective of trying to make validators dumb and commoditized, which as a design decision, I find pretty elegant because you've separated, you, you can then kind of have these very cheap, uh, kind of dumb, unsophisticated validators, which means you can have more of them and they can be individuals instead of professional corporations, which is great. And then you've separated out the more complex role of the builder, which is actually building the blocks. Then on Solana, they come at it from the perspective that it's unlikely that we're going to have 10 million people out there running a Raspberry Pi in the woods. And it's probably actually fine for there to be 10,000, uh, you know, slightly more expensive validators that are run out of data centers. And then Cosmos comes from the perspective of it's the opposite, right? So it's what can your validator do for you? They should do more than just consensus level stuff. They should run the code of the application because the, the implied idea is that they're app specific block space. So that's kind of where we're going to get into ABCI++. But now I think that folks in Ethereum are roughly contending with the idea that there are going to be big centralized builders. Um, you know, that's the, the reason why a proposer builder separation has been settled out. Say, well, maybe actually it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if proposers had a little bit more power here and they could uh, commit to things, um, you know, in advance that if, if those conditions aren't satisfied, then then it won't be, uh, yeah, maybe they should be able to do a little bit more, right? It's, this, is, this is the way it's similar to Eigenlayer, which is, all right, if, you know, validators are these dumb commoditized things, but it, what, what Eigenlayer says, if you opt into additional slashing conditions, you should be able to do more stuff. And Pepsi is sort of a version of that as well, so. Super interesting. Um, you know, I think to your point, uh, Ethereum has really prioritized um, making, you know, the role of the validator as accessible as possible um, and as, as dumb as possible. Um, and the trade-off associated with that is that you end up pushing a lot of the most, you know, com complex but critical functions. This is like, you know, hosting MEV boost auctions. Uh, this is liquid staking. This is restaking you push it like out of the protocol and it does not give you any ability to be opinionated about how, you know, what's healthy and what's not healthy. Um, and that is understandable because Ethereum has, you know, is the most general purpose base layer you can imagine, right? It's supposed to be able to host and like and stay completely neutral to whatever is being built on top. Um, in Cosmos, it's very straightforward. You have 150, say 200 max validators. All of them are securing and operating the chain that hosts a single application. And so if you want to say, if you have the ability to do additional work um, in the consensus process that makes the application better or allows the application to accrue more value, it's kind of easy to get everybody aligned and say, okay, today we're just, you know, 
you've got a very vanilla job. You're just, you know, like proposing blocks and everybody off, everybody else is signing off on it. Um, but Hey, like the application relies on this really, you know, uh, I would say like, maybe it's a, um, a, you have a critical dependency on an external Oracle and we don't like that, you know, regardless of everything going well at the consensus level, the application can break because we're relying on this third party Oracle. So let's have all the app, you know, validators apart from just, you know, doing what they were already doing also submit Oracle prices that the application will use. That way our Oracle is as secure as the chain itself, right? Or let's do, let's submit an Oracle price. Let's host a top of block auction. We can do that all on chain and let's, you know, rearrange some transactions. So maybe like the Oracle transaction comes first. So it's, you know, fresh for every block. It's very easy when it's all, you know, everybody's aligning around one application. Um, on Ethereum, I think, you know, it's the polar opposite situation, but they have now come around on this idea of, hey, we do need to be a little bit more opinionated at the protocol level, but how do we do this in an elegant way? Um, how do we make it so that we're not being you know, opinionated about any one application and we're not like forcing every single validator to do this work. We want it still to be, you know, if you want to not opt into any of this additional work and run a Raspberry Pi with, you know, limited complexity, like that's still possible, right? Um, and so Pepsi is trying to say, okay, what are like a few jobs that validators could host or opt into these commitments that are so generalized and so, you know, utilized by so many applications that it would make financial sense for them to opt in. Um, and this is not things like, you know, we're going to stand up a side node to validate a Cosmos chain, which is like what Eigenlayer could enable. This is not things, you know, that are specific to any one application. Um, and I think that's where Eigenlayer comes in, but it's saying, how do we make some of the most critical functions that is either facilitated by off-chain agreements, you know, like PBS today, or facilitated by Eigenlayer today, more controlled in and done in a safer way because it's being pulled into the protocol. Um, and so, yeah, I was just really interested because I've been thinking about Pepsi and thinking about ABCI++ a lot on Cosmos and finally now seeing, you know, this list of bullets that kind of gives me a much better idea around the certain use cases that that fit those parameters and those constraints of, of additional work that it would make sense to, you know, give validators the choice to opt into. And you can see like why these, you know, are, they're so generalized and would be used by so many applications that, you know, it, it, it could be similar to MEV boost where like all of these things are just no brainers to opt into. Right. So the reason there have been sort of two different discussions here. So Pepsi relates to, uh, PBS because it's kind of a generalized implementation of of PBS, which is we were discussing before that the implementation that the spec of EPBS matters and like a really good example of that is in MevBoost you cannot do partial block construction because the entire mechanism depends on builders sending along the block header just the block header across a relay and then that gets connected to a proposer they sign it and then the pay payload gets released, right? So slightly simplified version there. Um, so because you're only sending along the header, you can't, you know, fundamental to the design is you can't actually uh, do partial block block building where, you know, one builder builds a little bit of a block, the other build, builder builds a little bit like the other part of the block, and then a validator collects it. So 
really what this, it's a more general sort of implementation of this idea that proposers can make commitments. And then, um, you know, what, what Barnaby advocated for is that kind of this incremental implementation of something like Pepsi, where full on Pepsi looks something like Eigenlayer. Maybe in the meantime, we can just try this as a sort of a hook that will allow proposers only to make commitments to builders around kind of the block building sort of activity. So you're taking something that was totally off chain before and Ethereum didn't really have an opinion on and actually enshrining it within the protocol. And yeah, I found this list very useful of you know some of the use cases. So you can still do a full block auction like is, is the case right now. You can do partial block auctions. You can do parallel block auctions and actually, um, this is where you could maybe divide up like a, so you can imagine a case where a proposer divides up, you could segment the block space into top of block option and then the rest of the block. Now, you know, we, we know that top of block auction is actually a very valuable, uh, there's a lot of MEV that can get extracted that way. So this is probably a more efficient and granular way to price different MEV opportunities, which I find pretty interesting. There was some other stuff here that I hadn't even necessarily thought about uh, so future slot auctions. So again, something I just didn't know, but you can look up the schedule of different proposers, um, I guess, two epochs away. So what you could eventually end up doing is selling your future block space. Um, so you can kind of create this new financial architecture. And it's just, you know, what essentially what the way I kind of think about it is Pepsi is putting more explicit rules around the marketplace. Whenever you do that, you first of all, you're actually strengthening trust so you can kind of lower costs. But then because people trust these mechanisms, you can do things that would have been impossible before. So there's kind of this Cambrian explosion of different things that you can do around MEV. So maybe it's the creation of new financial instruments. Maybe it's, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe it's, uh, yeah, w whatever it is, uh, or different types of auctions that you can run or different pricing structures that simply wouldn't have been possible before. Um, the, the other thing that you could do, the way I could see this being sort of a useful check against large centralized builders as well, is proposers would have the ability to commit either to a specific hash, so the amount that a builder you know is offering them, and then that actually gives the builder more optionality because they're only committing to amount. So in the time after they've you know they've had that header committed to them, they can wait a little bit and aggregate a little bit more information. And as long as the state output is the same, you know, they can potentially craft an even, um, an even more valuable block. But the other thing that proposers are capable of doing is they can point, they can commit to a certain builder without knowing the contents of the block. So like, let's say there was a situation where, you know, we let these builder games just play out very centralizing, right? So the, you know, the big hedge funds of the world are making, you know, two hedge funds are making 70% of the blocks. The proposers could take some sort of stance and say, I actually really want to use a decentralized block builder like Suave or something like that, where we're less worried about these centralization concerns. And I'm just going to commit to only building, you know, uh, validating blocks that are proposed by Suave, the builder. That's fascinating. I mean, I... I definitely thought of, you know, the intense space and, and, and suave, whether you want to call it, you know, and building in the intense space or not as, as a big part of this, um, because you basically have to, it, it gives builders who are going to be the solvers for a lot of these, you know, um, intense applications, more guarantees around that, you know, the fact that they can make commit basically 
give solve whatever the user wants and also you know be profitable on the other end because their you know a transaction is going to get included under xyz conditions um you know i think the this idea of buying futures block space is also super interesting um yeah you know this is an idea that first came out of i think the atom 2.0 white paper um i'm thinking about you know let's not it's not a uh, an auction that's being held for this specific block, but it's saying, you know, in N plus in N blocks, right. I want, yeah, I want to basically buy the right to have top of block or the full block now. Um, and that way I can kind of guarantee, you know, that, that whatever I've like, whatever risk I've taken on for some sort of aggregation play can be settled on chain. Um, or you can even think about it like even more like, I, I guess straightforward. It's like an NFT mint. Right, some of these things get absolutely insane, right? And and you could have like a team that buys block space, you know, for the top of block to like aggregate all of these transactions that have been have been made, or like one big like mint transaction or something like that. Um, so yeah. there are definitely some interesting like ways that this will play into the product side and how products can now you know potentially do some more interesting things in their in their back ends in order because they have these you know guarantees and this flexibility with block building um but yeah i think it's super interesting the especially this venn diagram of you know what falls into something that should be you know an eigenlayer job um that's not had the protocols not really aware of what what makes sense for pepsi and what makes sense for pure pbs um and yeah, I think I think the big question is, you know, how much demand is there going to be on on the more exotic stuff that is more application specific? Um, you know, how many validators are going to want to run and do additional work um, that is more application specific rather than, you know, just uh, something that's like block building is so generalized, right? And you can understand yeah. understand why the opt in percentage would be extremely high there question that I have is even in terms of pricing MEV, like so proposers now have the ability to segment out block space into top of block versus rest of block. Thing is, I would imagine there's an asymmetry in between the amount of knowledge that builders have versus what your average self staker has in terms of pricing for a top of block versus rest of block kind of opportunities. You see what I'm saying? Like they, the builders would be the ones who are aware of what that block space is worth. Uh, as opposed to this kind of divided, you know, set of distributed validators. So I actually sort of walked away wondering how they're that's, they're going to solve that issue here. Seems like the opportunity for a service provider to come in <laughs> and yeah. solve all this complexity for them. Um, I mean, but- it might actually be something that could just be solved with transparency. I mean, it, all this stuff is happening on chain, right? I mean, you should be able to see, unless I'm totally mistaken in terms of how this would actually work, what you know the sort of price discrepancies in between top of block versus rest of block MEV opportunities? Yeah, right. Yeah. Shouldn't you be able to get that? It's the the sophisticated, a lot of sophisticated tools, I think. Um, yeah, but but not you know not anything that's at the disposal of a solo self staker. Um, they could you know get paid ten ETH and be very very happy, even though it turns out like that block could have been worth a hundred ETH and still profitable to the builders, right? Um, hmm. Yeah, no, I, I haven't actually thought about that side, you know, too much. But um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot of um, it's a lot of open questions here about what this would look like um, and just how incremental they want to they want to go with this, right? Because um, 
do you just open up the floodgates after you do the initial PBS pilot and make, you know, the fully generalizable piece, you know, open to any sort of commitment? Um, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure how that like plays with EIPs and actual like chain upgrades and, you know, how they intend to roll this out. Um, yeah. On the Xerox research podcast, I actually did a little recap from ECC and one of the big things I kind of noticed was that enshrining is coming back in vogue. And this wasn't a gen, you know, a genius observation from me. It was Vitalik actually led with that on a slide on account abstraction because there's going to need to be some amount of enshrining and probably, you know, so it's, it's very, it's easy to follow the logical train of thought, right? Which is part of the value, a huge part of the value of Ethereum is being incredibly neutral layer and they wanting to avoid making these sorts of decisions that you would have to make for instance if you if you enshrine something like delegated proof of stake right because then they would have to have an opinion on which validators to use etc that feels pretty bad so they outsourced a whole bunch of very critical functions to the to the to the protocol and now maybe now maybe now maybe the pendulum swung a little bit too far in that direction and they're they're swinging it back which is i feel like a totally reasonable set of decisions to make right so. right but they have to make it opt-in right because you don't want to screw over the little guy that has no idea what's going on or how to how to run yeah this additional stuff um that that kind of feels fine to me you know yeah allow people to do this stuff make it opt-in give the tooling make it easy yeah right yeah I mean, but i also think that's why there's probably still you know a huge need for like these you know like marketplaces like eigenlayer that make a lot of this you know setting up a lot easier you make like you know the ability to create new commitments that you know validators could could end up opting into um like i think there's a lot of a lot of opportunity for like actually getting this out to the uh to the both you know the users the demand side or people that would want these jobs done and make it easy for validators to opt in and out mm. I think Coinbase earnings might have just come out. Beat earning expectations report adjusted revenue of 708 million. Loss per share of 42 cents. Uh, subscription revenue clocked in at 335 million. That's down 7% on the quarter. Transaction revenue came in at 327. Looking for their EBITDA loss because they were, they were guiding towards, I think, something like negative 550 on the year. And so I'm you're saying, sure. you're saying the base. The base revenues have not have not been reflected. <laughs> Miles, I don't think they've been kicked in yet. But God, you know, if I had one wish, just one, I just want one of these analysts to ask Brian Armstrong about bald token on on the earnings call. If I could just, if I could only ask for one thing, that oh would be that would be pretty excellent. Total transaction revenues down quarter over quarter from three hundred fifty two to three ten. Um, uh, on that's on the the consumer side of things uh institutionals down a little bit from 22.3 to 17.1 uh so overall transaction revenue is down subscription and services we are down about we're again a little bit of a drop um so from 361.7 million last quarter to 355 this quarter interestingly the interest income is down it looks like that is almost purely a reflection of interest income blockchain rewards is up from 7 73.7 to 87.6 that makes sense i think that's mostly staking rewards so that would be largely exposed to the price of eth but 
yeah, that's kind of interesting about the interesting come. I would have thought that that would continue to be up only, but hmm. so overall, not not a bad not a bad result for for Coinbase. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to think about why that might be the case. Um, you know, maybe it's the the revenue share with Maker finally kicking in on some of the the uh, deposits, but I I think it'll be interesting to see also where they bucket the base revenues. Um, you know, are those transaction revenues? Is that some sort of subscription revenue? Um, un, unclear to me, but yeah, I think I'd probably, you'd probably be blockchain rewards. I would have to guess. Don't you think? I guess so. That's where I would put it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, so I think it will be, yeah, we'll see just how quickly, like some of the analysts pick up on, you know, the new product lines. Um, and what we're paying attention to, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's usually, it's quite a lag, but there will be numbers that people are gonna ask, what, what are those <laughs> next quarter? So mm. um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see when we get there. All right, buddy, this has been a, uh, a really fun one here. Yeah. Um, Love it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Chat next week.